Welcome to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on the uses of MRI results in an era of expanding MS therapy options. With us today is that issue's author, Dr. Benjamin Greenberg, Associate Professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurotherapeutics and the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss the prognostic significance of MRI findings at the time of diagnosis, identify the prognostic significance of MRI changes during the course of disease-modifying therapy, and describe how the evolving landscape of disease-modifying therapies affects risk-benefit calculations when considering therapy changes. Dr. Greenberg has indicated that he has received grant support from Accorda Therapeutics, Biogen, Chungai Pharmaceutical Company, and Metamune. He has served as a consultant for Metamune, Novartis, and EMD Serrano. He's indicated that his presentation today will not reference the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Emultiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Greenberg, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed some of the recent evidence evaluating the uses of MRI in managing multiple sclerosis, including correlations between MRI and brain volume, MRI findings relative to outcomes in early MS, and MRI lesions as a surrogate marker for relapses. You also described the concept of NIDA, or no evidence of disease activity, as a goal for clinical trials. Today, I'd like to focus on how some of that new information can impact clinical practice. So start things off for us, if you would, doctor, by describing a patient's situation. So this case is of a 38-year-old woman with relapsed and remitting multiple sclerosis for five years. When she was first diagnosed, she started therapy with interferon beta-1A in the intramuscular weekly injection formulation. Ultimately, she changed to acetate after only six months due to intolerable side effects from the interferon. Over the last four and a half years on glutiramoracetate, she's had no new relapses, has been compliant with her medication, and has been undergoing annual MRIs in order to look for any evidence of new disease activity. These MRIs have remained stable until the most recent MRI. When she comes to clinic with the MRI in hand, it is reviewed and reveals a new enhancing lesion in the left parietal lobe. Based on her history and exam, there are no obvious symptoms that could be attributed to this lesion. Uh, She's been having annual MRIs despite no changes in her disease status. Uh, Is that appropriate? Uh, My question really is, is it reasonable to perform annual surveillance MRIs in patients like this when there are no clinical changes? This is one of the questions that comes up in clinic all the time. What is the value of an annual or even semi-annual or biannual MRI in the management of a multiple sclerosis patient? And in general, the view is that MRI data can be helpful for identifying suboptimal responders to any given therapy. Given the fact that 90% of lesions within the brain of patients with multiple sclerosis are asymptomatic, it means that there can be a lot of disease activity going on without obvious clinical symptoms. And while there's a lack of consensus of which MRI feature is most important, meaning you could follow T2 lesions, enhancing lesions, black holes, or atrophy, Identifying some sort of change on an MRI may be impactful for treatment decisions. As mentioned in the newsletter, Dr. Sermani and colleagues examined multiple patients in an analysis of trials looking at MRI lesions as a surrogate for relapses. And when they collected all the data in a meta-analysis, what they found was a correlation between the ability to suppress 
new MRI lesions like the one this patient had and the ability to suppress relapses. Thus, there's some data to suggest that using that annual surveillance MRI and showing that whatever disease-modifying therapy you're using is indeed suppressing new lesions may be impactful over the long run as a surrogate for preventing relapses. She comes in, as you noted, with a new enhancing lesion in her left parietal lobe. Is this an indication that changes in her therapy should be considered? Clinicians and patients, when taking a disease-modifying therapy, constantly have to ask themselves, is the therapy being tolerated and is it achieving the goal intended? Specifically, is it suppressing the disease activity? Is it putting a patient into remission? So the question comes up in terms of when should a therapy be switched? What are the indications? And when a patient comes in either with new disease activity or side effects, the clinician and the patient have to ask themselves several questions. The first is, is the patient actually taking the medication? When an individual comes in with breakthrough disease, compliance and adherence is critical because if a patient is not taking a medication as prescribed, then it's hard to define them as having a suboptimal response or breakthrough disease or failure of the medication because indeed they're not getting a full dose effect. Secondly, clinicians and patients have to look for evidence of clinical progression or relapses. Has the patient had any new symptoms or events that would suggest breakthrough disease? Are old symptoms slowly getting worse, suggesting a progression of underlying disease? Or in general, could the medication be providing side effects that make their symptoms worse? The third thing that needs to be considered by clinicians and patients is the MRI. Is there evidence of breakthrough disease, as we've seen in this case, even in the absence of symptoms and even when a patient is being compliant with the medication? As we saw from Dr. Sermani and colleagues, the MRI findings can be a correlate to disease activity and can be predictive of relapses, but the use of the MRI as a surrogate of disease activity in clinical practice remains controversial. Most of the evidence suggests that when an MRI changes, it will be predictive of future disability. And indeed, in the newsletter, Dr. Mogsy and colleagues indicated that even in early multiple sclerosis, magnetic resonance imaging changes, whether it be new lesions, enhancing lesions, or volume changes, would precede changes in disability. Thus, it is reasonable for clinicians and patients to consider MRI data when deciding should or shouldn't they remain on a disease-modifying therapy. And ultimately, what this leads us to ask is, how high should we set the bar? With all the different therapeutic options we have available, the temptation is to set the bar high, meaning we should keep all of our patients in complete remission with no evidence of disease activity. But for each individual patient, the benefit-risk ratio has to be considered. If the alternative drug that we are considering has individual risks or safety concerns, then patients and clinicians may opt to remain on a suboptimal therapy, even in the face of relapses or MRI changes, because the risks to that individual may be too great to change the therapy. Thus, all of these decisions need to be individualized for each patient between them and the clinician having a conversation. When you're talking about how high to set the bar, are you referring to NIDA, and that is, no evidence of clinical disease activity? The idea of NIDA, or no evidence of disease activity, is deciding how do we monitor patients. And currently, as it's defined, NIDA includes a patient who would have no evidence of relapses, no evidence of progression of disability as measured by the Expanded Disability Status Scale, or EDSS, no evidence of new T2 hyperintense lesions, and no evidence of new post-gadolinium-enhancing lesions. So in the current literature, when we refer to NIDA, it means that a patient has had all four of those, 
It, it's like a trifecta. You have to have all of them in order to be included in that category. And it is used as a level of evidence to say that we have put the patient into full remission. So the first question that needs to be asked about NIDA is, number one, as it's currently defined, do patients who achieve that goal go on to have a good course, good quality of life, lack of disability? And the flip side is, do those patients who fail to meet that goal, are they destined to have disability? And the second question then is, if that definition of NIDA is not predictive, what would an alternate, more accurate definition be? So at this point in time, NIDA is being considered as the goal in MS. But as we saw in the newsletter from Dr. Rothstein and colleagues who reported on the evaluation of NIDA activity in a seven-year longitudinal multiple sclerosis cohort, this is a group of patients out of Boston who have been involved in what's called the CLIMB study. They found that there were some elements of NIDA that were not predictive, specifically that there were patients achieving NIDA who overwhelmingly went on to have no disability over the seven years, but that there were patients who had some evidence of disease activity during those seven years, but were not progressing in terms of disability. Now, what is lacking is the long-term outcomes, meaning at the 20-year mark, would those individuals with evidence of clinical or MRI breakthrough be destined to have disability, and we just don't know the answer yet. What was most notable from the study, though, was a certain percentage, about 15% of patients, who had no evidence of MRI disease activity at year seven, but did have evidence on the clinical side, raising the question of how good are our MRI surrogates of activity for predicting clinical progression. Thus, I think the notion is correct. The overall goal of inducing complete remission is correct, but we're going to need long-term studies to validate what are the criteria for achieving NIDA. For example, should we be including brain atrophy in the definition of NIDA or not? And these are things that require further study. Based on what we've just been discussing, how would you recommend treating this patient? Relative to this patient, who's had a four-year experience with glutaramor acetate, no new symptoms, but now has evidence of new disease activity based on the MRI, a new enhancing lesion, I think this patient would need to have a serious conversation with their clinician about changing disease-modifying therapies. And the critical portion of that conversation would be an assessment of that patient's notion of risk. Glutaramor acetate has an incredible safety record over many years now, and a lot of the alternatives that we would consider come with heightened risk. At the same time, we would remind the patient that there's risk of the disease progressing and there are opportunities to put her into long-term remission. So in general, for this patient, if they were willing to change the risk ratio of the therapy they take, I would probably recommend looking at one of the FDA-approved oral therapies or natalizumab, depending on her JC antibody status, as a very appropriate medication to consider switching to. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Benjamin Greenberg from UT Southwestern Medical Center in just a moment. Hello, this is Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Emultiple Sclerosis Review. If you found today's program on iTunes or on the web, please be sure to subscribe. This podcast is part of Johns Hopkins Emultiple Sclerosis Review, an educational program providing monthly activities certified for CME credit. Emultiple Sclerosis Review provides expert commentary and useful practice information for clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. For additional information, or to subscribe to receive our newsletters and podcasts without charge, please visit www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this Emultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. 
We've been talking with Dr. Benjamin Greenberg from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas about incorporating MRI results into this current era of expanding therapy options for patients with MS. So, Dr. Greenberg, let's continue by going back to the clinic. Well, Bob, I actually think it's interesting to take this same patient scenario, but give you some more information and go back to her initial presentation and talk about it. So it's the same 38-year-old woman with relapse-remitting MS. Her original presentation was with a right-sided optic neuritis, but now I want to tell you about her baseline MRI. So when she first came in, it revealed a significant disease burden with diffuse T2 hyperintense lesions. She had several T1 black holes, and she already had atrophy out of proportion to her age. And this is the same patient who started on interferon, ultimately switching to glutaramer acetate due to side effects, and remained on the glutaramer acetate for four and a half years until coming in with that new enhancing lesion in the absence of symptoms. Uh, A patient with this kind of presentation, talk about her prognosis. What's concerning and what's reassuring? So one of the things clinicians and patients have to do when making an initial decision about disease-modifying therapy is take all the data available to them and discuss prognosis. Are they somebody in a category where we're concerned about rapid progression of disability, or are they in a category of patient where they are more likely to have a relatively benign course of the disease? No prognostics in MS are perfect. These rules get broken all the time. But in general, relative to this patient, since it is better to be a woman than a man with this disease, her gender would be reassuring. While it is better to have non-motor symptoms at first event, her optic neuritis is relatively reassuring compared to somebody who would have difficulty walking as their first presentation. But relative to this patient, what is concerning is her baseline MRI. The presence of diffuse T2 lesions, the black holes, and the atrophy each independently have a poor prognostic indicator for ultimate disability. When evaluating that baseline MRI, doctor, which findings would you consider most significant? So when we're talking about MRI and what's most significant or concerning, it really depends on what you're interested in. So if you look at the T2 burden on the MRI, it really gives you a sense of the person's prior disease history. Clearly, they've been having events. This is the scar tissue that's left over from prior events. And if they have diffuse T2 changes, it means they've been dealing with disease probably for a long period of time before coming to presentation at your office. The T1 black holes on the MRI gives you a sense of severity of attack. Specifically, these form when there's axonal transection and axonal damage. So somebody who has lots of T2 lesions but relatively no T1 black holes, it may give you a sense of their ability to compensate or repair from attacks. And their presence of T1 black holes gives you a sense that a person is not recovering as well from an immune-mediated attack on the brain. The enhancing lesions will suggest how robust the immune response is, how active their disease is. The more enhancing lesions means at that moment in time, their immune system is causing more active damage than what's happened in the past. And finally, atrophy is a global measure of brain injury. So if you're trying to get a sense of what's happened in the past, the T2 burdens and the atrophy and the T1 black holes play a role, but if you're trying to get a sense of what's happening right now in front of you, the enhancing lesions are the most suggestive. What's known about how these MRI findings correlate to long-term disability? When we talk about long-term disability, there are studies looking at these different MRI measures. And in the newsletter, we referred to the Magzi and colleagues article that came out in 2014 that looked at T2 lesions, T1 lesions, and atrophy. And indeed, what they found was early in MS, that atrophy is a poor prognostic indicator for disability that's to come. So that would stand out to me probably more than anything else as a concerning feature. So when making initial treatment decisions, 
What role should the patient's baseline MRI characteristics play? Like anything else, when making an initial treatment decision, we start with patient preference and their ability to assess risk of a treatment and risk of the disease. But patients often want to know how active or how severe their disease is. And so an MRI with a lot of changes, T1 black holes, T2 hyperintensities or atrophy, can work to inform the patient that they are in a higher risk situation relative to disease progression. Patients who hear that they're at low risk of disability could afford trials of medications that have lower risk profiles, while patients who are in a high-risk situation may need to consider drugs that are classically described as second-line therapies. And so we have to individualize those options for each patient, taking all the data into account, including MRI. And in the clinician's monitoring decisions, uh, same question, what role should those baseline MRI characteristics play? Once a disease-modifying therapy is initiated, we have to monitor patients to determine are they responding or not. And this can entail a lot of different things. The basis of it is clinical exams and history taking, but we do use MRIs. And depending on how frequently a patient will be monitored clinically and with MRI, and depending on what types of monitoring you will use, could be dictated by how severe a case of MS the person has. If their baseline MRI characteristics put them in the high-risk, high-severity category, regardless of their clinical status, they're an individual who should probably be followed more frequently and more intensely because their room for error is less the next relapse and the next lesion could leave them with irreversible disability in a way that's easier than a person with a milder MRI. So while all of these decisions need to be individualized to the patient, the baseline MRI characteristic should be something that informs a clinician's decision on how frequently and how intensely to monitor the patient. So bottom line, the patient you described, how would you treat her? So this 38-year-old who presented with the optic neuritis and really no other symptoms had an MRI that had significant changes. While the decision to start interferon beta-1A and then ultimately glutarimer acetate is a very personal decision, I would put her in a category where we should be offering therapies that are traditionally defined as second line. With that severe of a change on MRI, the atrophy in the black holes, if this patient said that they wanted to start one of the oral therapies or natalizumab, I would consider it a very appropriate choice, again, based on that baseline MRI characteristic. Dr. Greenberg, normally at this point, I'd ask you to bring us another patient, but I think we'll be better served by continuing with this one. Uh, so if you would, doctor. So this same 38-year-old who presented with the severe disease started on the interferon, switched to glutarimer acetate because of side effects, and then came in with the new enhancing lesion and no symptoms, comes in and is discussing a change in therapy. So the question is, for whatever reason, if you get to the point of wanting to make a change, how do you decide that and which therapy should you choose? Before you make the decision to change therapy, what factors help you determine when a patient has legitimately failed their current disease-modifying therapy? So the first part of the equation is exactly how you say it. Have you failed or not? And for me, the term failure, which is used quite a bit, is somewhat troubling. I prefer to say suboptimal responder, and this is not just political correctness or coming up with nicer sounding terms. The reason I prefer suboptimal responder over the term failure is very specific. When an individual hears that they have failed a therapy, it assumes that a change must occur. 
Whereas when we talk about suboptimal response, it gives you the wiggle room to say, yes, you're not responding ideally, but this still may be the best drug for you as an individual, and we have to individualize it. So the definition of success in multiple sclerosis therapy has to be individualized. A new non-enhancing lesion could mean something different to a patient who was diagnosed just two years earlier versus somebody who had been stable on a drug for 10 years or more. Those patients are very different. So just defining a new lesion as failure and not taking into account the patient characteristics is a difficult thing to do. So in general, any evidence of breakthrough disease, whether it be clinical or radiographic, suggests that the patient is a suboptimal responder to the medication, and you have to decide what are the risks and benefits of a switch. And really what we're deciding is what is the risk of the disease progressing in that suboptimal response state versus the safety concerns of any medication you would switch to. Assuming that you are considering a switch, how do you determine which DMT to switch to? What issues should be considered? There are a list of things that both the patient and the clinician have to consider when jumping into that switch scenario. So the first is prior therapy. If a person has shown either side effects or breakthrough disease of any kind on an interferon before, while in the past we may have tried different interferons, in general today we consider switching to a different class of therapy. Then we have to consider the state of the patient. How healthy or disabled or symptomatic are they? If an individual is already acquiring disability based on their last relapse, we may consider going to a higher efficacy, more robust drug, even if it comes with more risk. But we have to consider that risk stratification, and this comes into comorbid issues. The best example currently in disease-modifying therapies is relative to natalizumab, where we use the JC virus antibody test to stratify an individual's risk of developing progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML, while on natalizumab. So we have to do an assessment of the patient to decide what drugs may or may not be appropriate for their given situation and medical history. Given the fact that the majority of our patients are women and often between the ages of 30 and 40, we have to have discussions with our patients about their reproductive plans. And indeed, even in the world of teraflutamide, where the label suggests counseling about reproductive risks for both men and women on the medication, this is now a conversation we have to have with all of our patients, regardless of gender, so we can counsel about the safety of medication if and when a patient decides that they want to become pregnant. Ultimately, we have to consider patient preference. Some patients have moved away from injectable therapies over concerns about the fact that they have to inject and prefer infusion or oral therapies, while some patients' preference are centered solely around side effects, tolerability, or risk. And so that patient preference is very important because that's what dictates adherence and compliance. It's great to prescribe medication for patients, but if they're not going to take it, it is really of no value. And then finally, unfortunately, in today's world, with our payer system and the rules around insurance, we have to consider cost and accessibility. The cost of these medications are all extremely high, and if patients cannot afford copays or do not have access to the medications, it doesn't matter what the decision is around a disease-modifying therapy, we have to ensure they can get access. So all of these different issues have to be taken into account when deciding which therapy to switch to. What can you tell us about the comparative efficacy of the different DMT therapies? So this is a great question, and, and we get asked this all the time at meetings with our colleagues and from our patients, which drug is best? 
And there are two parts to the answer. So the first is defining what do we mean by which drug is best. And in my view, what we want is a drug that will put a patient into remission. And the best way we have to measure that is the currently used no evidence of disease activity metrics, meaning which patients, how many patients will go into a remission where they have no relapses, no progression of their disability, and no new lesions on their MRI. No evidence of disease activity, abbreviated as NIDA. What do the clinical trials show? So when we look at the data from controlled trials, we could ask ourselves the question of what percent of a patient population would go into remission when on a drug? And the data suggests from these controlled trials that there are different tiers to the medication relative to their ability to achieve this NIDA status. The FDA-approved drugs alemtuzumab and natalizumab probably have the highest rate of achieving the NIDA status. And what was interesting was, considering the oral therapies, the decision about tiering these drugs based on efficacy when there is a complete lack of head-to-head trials. In the newsletter, we reviewed data from an article published by Dr. Nixon and colleagues where they used mathematical modeling to do indirect comparisons between the oral therapies. And this is a little controversial because it's all taking published data, applying statistics to it, but understanding that the cohorts of patients enrolled in those trials for teraflutamide, dimethylfumarate, and fingolimod were different cohorts. So they came up with mathematical models to compare them, and in their analysis, no matter which way they cut the numbers, fingolimod appeared to have a higher rate of achieving remission for patients than either teraflutamide or dimethylfumarate. So there is a sense that from an efficacy perspective, natalizumab, alentuzumab, and fingolimod are probably the most potent drugs. But what we have to remember is that there are responders and non-responders to every drug, meaning there are patients on glutarimer acetate, there are patients on interferon, teraflutamide, who go into complete remission, but the percent of the population who achieve that is less with those drugs. But at the same time, for those patients, there may be different risk or lower risks than the natalizumab or alemtuzumab or fingolimod. So when making a change in therapy, efficacy is important, but it also comes with a trade-off between an escalation in efficacy and a risk of complication. So to return to the patient you described, she wants to change her therapy. How are you going to advise her? So in this patient who had the severe MRI to begin with, who's having evidence of breakthrough disease within the four years, I would be leaning towards using one of the drugs with a better batting average relative to putting her into complete remission with the sense that she has less room for error. So depending on her JC antibody status, I would either recommend probably natalizumab or fingolimod at this point. If she were JC antibody negative, natalizumab would be a perfectly appropriate choice. If she were positive, fingolimod could be considered. But in the world we live in today where complications are reported with both, that decision would be individualized based on her risk assessment of these two choices. That world we live in today is, as we all know, it's rapidly changing. What do you see as the most significant changes that are likely to happen over the next 10 years or so? Well, the world of multiple sclerosis has been and continues to be very exciting relative to therapeutics. And the last 10 years was a revolution in the number and type of disease-modifying therapies that we have. The next 10 years will probably bring three significant changes. The first is surrogate markers for treatment response. Can we put somebody on a drug and know are they responding or not early in the course of the disease? I'm thrilled to see clinical trials for drugs to repair the damage that's been done by multiple sclerosis. 
And finally, I think on the horizon, we're going to see drugs that will treat progressive disease, something that we've been lacking. And all three of those things will change the way we practice over the next 10 years. Well, thank you for today's discussion, Dr. Greenberg. To wrap things up, let's review what we've talked about today in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the prognostic significance of MRI findings at the time of diagnosis. This learning objective was most directly related to case number two, where we discussed how different MRI findings at the onset of disease relate to different aspects of both the biology of multiple sclerosis, the prognosis relative to disability, and can be incorporated into treatment decisions. Data suggests that baseline MRI findings in an MS patient can be prognostic for disability status, and both clinicians and patients should consider that when making a treatment decision. And our second objective, the prognostic significance of MRI changes during the course of disease-modifying therapy. In the first case that we considered, the patient was stable clinically on glutiramer acetate, but had a new asymptomatic MRI change while on therapy. This raises the question of how do MRI findings prognosticate for outcome during the course of therapy and how should it be incorporated into treatment decisions? Incorporating the articles reviewed in the newsletter is ample evidence to suggest that MRI changes, even in the absence of clinical events, can be a harbinger of disability to come or relapses to come. Thus, routine MRI surveillance of a patient is appropriate, and incorporation of disease activity findings from MRI should be used in treatment decisions. Uh, and finally, how the evolving landscape of disease-modifying therapies affects risk-benefit calculations when considering therapy changes. This learning objective of considering how far we've come and where we're going relative to disease-modifying therapies was really encapsulated in case three, specifically the question of, you've defined a patient as having a suboptimal response, now what do you do? And in a world where there is a lack of head-to-head -head trials, we reviewed literature that uses statistical analysis to compare different therapies to categorize them based on their relative efficacy. While this is not ideal, it is the best we have. And what we have found is the trend that with an increasing proportion of patients placed into remission by a drug, there tends to be a trend towards increasing risk of complications. Thus, the treatment decisions have to be individualized based on the patient's comorbid conditions and risk factors in order to balance the risk benefits of any therapeutic decision. We found that within the injectable, infusible, and oral therapies, there are differences that have to be taken into account when either initiating or changing a therapy for an MS patient. Dr. Benjamin Greenberg from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, thank you for participating in this eMultiple Sclerosis Review podcast. Bob, it's been a pleasure. I hope your listeners find this helpful and insightful as they care for patients with multiple sclerosis. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.emultiplesclerosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Multiple Sclerosis Review newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with multiple sclerosis. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eMultiple Sclerosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.e.
multiplesclerosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.